Gaurav Gupta is a director at the change and leadership advisory firm Cotter, with global business experience translating strategy into successful implementation in diverse contexts. He is the co-author of the book Change, which details how organizations can achieve hard-to-imagine results by mobilizing more leadership from more people. Gaurav Gupta at Cotter International, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So we've just come out of uh, COP26 and Cotter International, you've been for years applying uh, your research to how we might analyze and improve upon our uh, leadership and organizations. I'm wondering what are some ways we could enact positive and rapid change in the time that we have? What would you like to see done? What countries or industries are doing it right? I might start by saying a lot of our research comes out of the business sphere. That's sort of where we've done all of our, our research. And, and our research has been focused on how do you effectively lead change? And the most important part of that is how do you generate commitment from people to do something different, right? How do you get people to have a sense of urgency to actually take action and do something different? And as we have sort of expanded that research a little bit and looked at what's happening more from a, from a broader societal context, what we're finding is the learnings from business very much do apply to other spheres, very much do apply to organizations outside of the business sphere, but also more generally to challenges like, like climate change, because we're facing the question of how do you get more people to actually be willing to take real meaningful action. And, and that's the same, whether it's in a business world or whether that's in this case, in terms of talking about climate change. And one of the key things that, that we found from our research is the idea of a burning platform does not really work, right? And for a long time, you know, people talked about burning platforms as a way to motivate change. And it was about how do you engineer a crisis? So how do you create a situation where people see a real sense of, you know, oh gosh, if we don't do something now, we're going to be in real trouble. Uh, and that works to motivate people to take the first step. But if you're trying to get people to want to take multiple steps and you're trying to get people to want to stay on a journey for a long time to drive meaningful change, you've got to pair that burning platform with something that's opportunity focused, right? Why is this good? What are the benefits in doing this? And so when we talk about climate change from our perspective, uh, we think too much of the focus is on the burning platform. Now, there's no question when you talk about climate change, there is a massive burning platform, right? We've got to do something fast. There is a literal burning platform when we talk about climate change, but we've got to be able to pair that with the opportunities that come with taking the actions we need to take. The opportunities that come with shifting from a fossil fuel driven industry to a renewable energy driven industry and, and being able to do that so that people are not just seeing the crisis, but are also seeing opportunities in the crisis is a critical component of, of, of sort of driving long-term sustainable change towards solving what are very complex problems. Yeah, I think that that's so important because as you identify, there's this kind of survival mode and then there's this a thrive mode where people feel a little bit more at ease. But our tendencies, as you say, is to get paralyze or else defend ourselves in a very rapid but physical way that's not about building it's just about you know fixing and that's important but i do think that when people feel that there's growth 
and a, a real chance for them to build something, they'll be empowered. In terms of real examples about, you know, countries or organizations on the business side that are really doing it well, who are adapting well, and also are seeing the opportunities and benefiting from it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're absolutely right, Mia, when you talk about sort of the, the survive, thrive, and that's one of the constructs that underpins a lot of what we're doing right now in terms of working with organizations, because back to sort of the idea of the burning platform and the opportunity focus, once we trigger this survive mechanism in people, what it drives is it drives a, a, a fight or flight response. And that is useful if you're trying to solve problems where you already know the answer, right? And it's just about working harder. It's about greater focus. Unfortunately, that also shuts down uh, the thrive mechanism, which is our innate curiosity seeking, uh, innovative, collaborative side. And, and if you shut that down, then when you're trying to solve problems that require uh, more creativity or more collaboration across silos in a business, or whether it's across countries and individuals across society, you struggle if you're unable to activate that, that thrive side. And so, you know, to your question of, what, what examples of organizations that are doing this well, the ones that are doing it well, they are taking a broader view of who their stakeholders are, right? So it's not organizations that are hyper-focused on shareholders without considering the needs of employees and customers and suppliers and the broader community um, struggle to be able to, to sort of see these threats and opportunities uh, before they're already on them, right? Because when you take a broader view of who your stakeholders are and you look at different people's perspectives, you see these threats and opportunities while they're still far away on the horizon. And so organizations that do that, who look for opportunity in order to motivate and, and get people to work towards one common goal, those are the ones that are doing well. It's the ones that are actually looking uh, for a, a purpose-driven common goal that they can get employees motivated and mobilized around that are looking to create more leadership for more people in the organization that are not relying on, you know, five or six people to drive change and drive strategy and drive direction, and who are looking at this multi-stakeholder viewpoint, not simply looking at only the needs of shareholders as the primary interest of the business. Yes, because you've uh, written about as well with your, in your book, Change, you've written about how we really can tap into these, I should say the full subtitle is Change, How Organizations Achieve Hard to Imagine Results Despite Uncertain and Volatile Times. You can tap into these reserves of energy that you wouldn't normally have and and who knows where it comes from but it's like an untapped well when you feel like it's almost an imaginative process I, I feel like we can't enact change if we cannot imagine it so when you get people's imaginations they can do so much they're like artists in a way yeah absolutely you know one of the one of the concepts we talk about in the book is this idea of have to and want to and often in, in our sort of organizational lives, most of what we do is driven by have to, right? I have to do this because it's part of my job description. I have to do this because uh, it's what I've been asked to do. And, and that's fine. There's going to be certain things that I have to. The key is how do we tap into want to, right? How do we tap into people's desire to want to do something? And those things are generally outside of the job description. Those things are generally things that I'm passionate about for other reasons. Uh, and when we can intersect the have to and the want to, so the things that are part of my job description or the things that are part of my role with the things that I really want to do, um, that's when you start to start to really tap into people's both, both innovation and creativity, but also inspiration, right? That's when you get people to really, really want to come along with the journey. And so for leaders, I think the challenge becomes 
how do you really start to create an environment within which people can volunteer to do things in which people can say look that may not be part of the job description as it's outlined right now but i'm really passionate about it i have these skills that i can bring to this uh, and i want to get involved with this right i want to get involved with this special project with this special initiative and i want to and i want to take some of the skills that i have and apply them to these situations because when leaders are able to do that that's when you start to unlock this back to that the description of the thrive that's when you start to unlock people's people thrive, right? You start to really activate that thrive channel and get people motivated to work on change. They're willing to go beyond, you know, and we always get asked the question of, but how do people create space? Because, you know, everyone's so busy. Well, the thing is, it's not time you run out of, it's bandwidth and interest. And so if you can, if you can get people to tap into that one, two energy, um, it does create that extra sort of capacity to do things uh, that they find interesting. And so that's true in in the business world, it's also true in our personal lives, right? When we're doing things that we're passionate about and that have a goal, right? Because if it's just something we're passionate about, that's fun, that's great. But if it's something we're passionate about and has a goal attached to it, that's when we're really able to activate that, that Thrive channel. Yes, and I think it's something about when you really care uh, for like it's like a family, when you really care and love what you're doing, it's like those not that they're sacrifices, but what you, what you do for your family, or and I understand it in a different way as an artist, artists will work for all sorts of hours and, you know, they won't sleep, but they get this energy. And because it's so bound up with who they are. And I think that in many ways, a lot of people kind of think, oh, I work, you know, it's what I do to survive or I work and they might even love their job, but it's a it's not close to them in that way, but when you can get people to care, we can make enormous leaps that I think we need to now. So it's important. So you go in, tell us a little bit about what you do at Cotter in terms of uh, going to organizations and helping them uh, communicate their vision. Sure. So, you know, for us, a lot of our work is around how do you create more leaders in an organization? Because what has become you know, increasingly clear, and you mentioned the subtitle of the book, which is all around uncertainty and volatility. And the reason we talk about uncertainty and volatility is because what has become increasingly clear over the last sort of couple of decades is the context we're operating in right now is an extremely, extremely uncertain context. And in an extremely uncertain context where where change is coming at us faster and faster. The old model where you had, you know, a few people in an organization who were sort of designated as leaders and who were the ones who, who would set direction, who would look for what changes were necessary, who would, you know, consider what strategies were required and then tell everybody else what to do just doesn't work anymore because there's too much happening too fast for a few people to handle it. And so if you want to have successful organizations, successful social movements, um, and social movements, by the way, have done a much better job of this in history. You have to create more leadership from more people. You have to get more people engaged with the idea of looking for threats, looking for opportunities, and then taking action to pivot when necessary. And so all of our work at Goddard uh, is helping organizations do that, right? It's helping organizations, particularly when they're in, the, in a situation where they're going through some sort of a large-scale change. So whether that's a, a restructuring effort or a merger or an acquisition, you know, or a digital transformation, in those situations, how do you uh, create the environment as a leader? Now, when I say leader here, I meant sort of the senior leaders in the organization. How do you create an environment that allows more people to tap into their want-to, that allows more people to engage and in, in, in a way that 
that empowers them to actually take action and, and actually to do something that moves you closer to your goal. And so, you know, there's a few components to that. The first one is being really clear about what you're trying to achieve and what your opportunity is. The second one then is making sure that you are getting wide perspective in terms of what that, you know, what direction you're setting, how you communicate that. So it's not just a cascade from the top down into the organization, but you actually leverage peer-to-peer communication and people are much more receptive to a message from people who they trust, from people who they know well. And so if you can get a peer-to-peer engagement strategy rather than a you know, push down from the top, uh, you're going to get more people on board. And so all of these tactics uh, are to create an environment within which more people uh, are going to want to lead and are going to want to provide the leadership that's needed to make change. These are all wonderful lessons that we can, I think, all um, learn and, and take from. And I'm wondering what exactly the impetus was behind writing this book in particular and how this topic may be different from other work that you've produced in the past. The impetus came from, one, this recognition that this level of uncertainty is so great, right? And if we look at what's happened in the last 18 months, I think we all understand it more intuitively now because we've all felt the uncertainty in in our personal lives, in our professional lives, in terms of how we interact with our family, in terms of how we interact with friends. I mean, we felt this in, in a way that we haven't in the past. But if you look at the data on what's been happening from a complexity and uncertainty perspective, it's been going up for a little while. It's been going up for a couple of decades. And, and so we wrote the book because our recognition was organizations, teams, individuals don't have tools and don't have an understanding of what drives change, right? Don't understand that science behind change well enough to be able to match that external pace of change. The external pace of change is faster than our ability as teams and individuals and, and organizations to keep up. And so that's, that was the motivation for the book. What we, the way we tried to write the book is to say, well, what do we understand from the science? What does that tell us about how we can better approach change? And because like I said, our research is very much business driven, book is sort of structured around the changes that organizations typically go through. So things like restructuring, M&A, digital transformation, strategic execution. As we were writing the book, we also though recognize that there's a, there's a huge amount to learn from social movements. There's a huge amount to learn from how social movements are able to activate commitment from people who are part of that movement. And so there's also a chapter in the book that that takes the learnings from those those social movements, applies them to business and vice versa, takes the learnings from from business and says, how how do we apply those to more effective social movements uh, and to things like like climate change and to to some of the other sort of topics that that are much broader than a single organization. I think there's definitely something within our our psychological makeup, as you observed, uh, that some individuals are resistant to change and others really seek it out. And why that is, I have a feeling that within organizations, people are sometimes afraid, even if they have good ideas, that they might also be contributing or designing their own obsolescence by streamlining the systems that they work in. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that different people do have a different point at which they're able to activate that thrive channel, right? There's a difference in terms of whether I run towards change, whether I resist it. That being said, all of us find certain change that we embrace, right? There are certain changes that all of us run towards because they're exciting, because they are things we want to be part of. And then there's change that we resist. And so I think that the question that, that 
we sort of wanted to understand is why is that? What is it about the change that we resist and what is it about the change that we embrace? A lot of that comes back to what we we're talking about earlier. Is it a change that is being driven by a threat? Is it a change that we kind of want to resist it because we don't want to do things that, you know, that we have to do? Or is it a change that we want because it's being driven by not a threat, but an opportunity? It's being driven by something that we see as being an exciting future, but also something we want to be engaged with along the way. And so that's the, the, the key, I think, is how do we get more people within the team, within the organization to be, to be seeing the change as something that is as forward-looking, that is exciting, that is something they want to partake in, rather than a threat-inducing something I have to do. Because, because while there might be differences in terms of how easily I activate my Thrive channel or how easily I get excited about something, all of us find changes that we embrace and all of us resist other changes. Yeah, none of us want to be the ones uh, making the mistake, you know, let somebody else go do that first and then we'll see if we jump in. I'm excited by change. I see them as challenges. So I love that. We've been going through a lot of changes, not just uh, recently, of course, with the environment, but with the pandemic, they have really changed the way people work. I mean, there's some people, a lot of people are saying they don't even want to go back to work in an office, you know, and now that it's safer to do so. So what are your reflections really? on the future of work and what this means. Some people have been putting forward ideas that you just go to work when it's really a collaborative time and a lot of the other stuff you can do at home. Maybe that's interesting that people can be taking those things home and then it becomes more important to them as it becomes associated with their home life. This is going to be, I think, an interesting question to see how it evolves. When it comes to collaboration and innovation, oftentimes it happens in an unplanned way, right? Oftentimes it happens in the oh, I ran into somebody, I talked to them about what I was doing, and I realized that they were doing something that was actually very similar. And then, and then we sort of, you know, uh, figured we could actually learn from each other. And those moments of learning are the, hard, are the hard ones to create when we're working from home or when we're not being able to interact. It's not actually working from home that's the challenge. It's the creating the moments of interaction. And so I think it will be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, my personal view is it's not going to go back to the way it was and it shouldn't, right? We should look to make it better. We should look to find better ways to do this. What was clear is when we, when the pandemic started and we all pivoted to actually working from home, we did that pretty quickly. And most organizations did that pretty successfully. They did that from a survive mentality. There was no choice about it. You had to do it. And so I think what we ended up doing is we tried to recreate the physical working in an office uh, we took the same meetings that we were having in person, and we tried to have those same meetings virtually. We took the same way we were operating and tried to just move it to a virtual world. The critical question will be, what is the way to make this flexible working uh, arrangement better than what we had before? Not the same, right? Um, but better. And, that, and that's probably going to mean reevaluating how we do certain things, right? How we look at what sort of meetings do we actually need? What's the best way to, to share information? Maybe it's not in, in meetings. Maybe it's not in Zoom calls. What are the different ways that we can start to create the information sharing, the idea generation, the inclusiveness? Because I think that's one of the big challenges actually in some ways been exacerbated by the work from home environment is I, I think we're less inclusive than we were before. So how do we create that inclusiveness? And I don't think there's an answer yet. And I don't have an answer for it. I think, I think we're going to have to try different things. I think the key will be for organizations to be willing to change and pivot and try something and experiment and see how it works and make adjustments and, and not get too rigid in an answer and not say, hey, we're definitely going to get everybody back into the office or we're definitely going to have flexible arrangements for everyone. 
I think we're just going to have to experiment and, and then pivot and change as we learn as we learn more. And on that note of these digital lives that we're leading and the future of work and in you know, our own redundancy or obsolescence, what are your reflections on AI? How can we harness its power and use it to serve us maybe in you know, tackling environmental issues or, or other things without, of course, taking away our very reason for being? Yeah. And I'll caveat this by saying I'm certainly not an expert in AI by any means. What I think is interesting is, is how do we how do we look how do we create more opportunities from AI, right? Which 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 expand what we're able to do, which expand the sorts of things that we're able to tackle, the kinds of complexity we're able to handle. Because complexity is not going down, it's only going to go up as we move forward. There's obviously a role that 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 things like AI, and not just AI, but technology in general. There are, there are ways that we, can, that we can use technology to be able to do more, to be able to expand what we're capable of doing. There is no question that technology and AI will create redundancies, will create obsolescence of certain types of, types of work. And obviously, there's a, there's a huge societal question of how do you make that transition? Because the, the labor market is not set up with enough flexibility at the moment. There is no question we don't have enough flexibility and adaptability in, in, in our labor markets to be able to respond to that large-scale shift in the types of work that, you know, that exists. We went through the industrial age. It was extremely painful during the time. And then we came out of it with new roles, with new, in many ways, more exciting roles. And I think the same thing is going to happen. But I do think at a, at a societal level, we need to be asking questions about how do we make that transition in ways that is less disruptive um, and that is less challenging for, uh, for people who, who are going to find themselves in situations where the, the kind of work that they do is being replaced or is, being, or is becoming obsolete, right? And we've got to find answers to that. And I think we're able to do more. And I think we're able to do things that we can't even think about right now. And there'll be roles that we haven't thought about. And there'll be different kinds of jobs for people to fill that we that we don't know about right now it's a question of how do you make that transition and how do you make that in the, in the least disruptive way possible thinking about COVID-19 and the rest of technology and how they both interact with each other and they're both very uncertain uh, what can readers learn from changing their mindset and how they view these uncertain circumstances and how can we apply these to future volatile um, circumstances and times Sure. I think the most important piece is to recognize that we can't predict the future, right? I mean, I think, I think we all fall into this trap of trying to figure out what changes are coming and then get ready for those changes, as opposed to saying, we know things will change. We don't know what they are. Our ability as human beings to predict the future is terrible. I mean, you look at, you look at uh, I was just talking to somebody about the Back to the Future movies, right? And Back to the Future uh, we're now past the furthest date that, that they traveled to in the movie Back to the Future. And we don't have flying cars and we don't have hoverboards, and, right? So our ability to predict the future is not very good. And so rather than trying to predict what changes are coming and then get yourself ready for them, I think the answer is recognize that changes will come. It is going to be uncertain. And so how do we create more adaptability? How do we create an organization that is able to pivot and move fast? How do we as as individuals build skills, build the mindsets, build the behaviors, that means we can pivot and change when something in the external context changes, rather than trying to predict what that change will be. And rather than trying to say, okay, since 30 years, I expect X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to start to 
start to get ready for that um, because we've just never been very good at, at being able to do that. So focus on adaptability, focus on being more flexible, focus as an organization on how do you create a more, more agile, fast-moving organization that can react. Uh, and that goes back to what we're talking about, having more people in, in an empowered position to be able to look for those threats and opportunities and take action and, and pivot when needed. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, um, like interpersonally, how people can change their mindset when they're in these unforeseen circumstances. And obviously, we can't predict the future, but what kind of goes on internally when someone is thrust into this situation? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I'll caveat this by saying our research is less on the individual and more on the sort of the organizational level. But I do think one of the keys is uh, recognizing what your survive triggers are. Right, because the reason we're the reason we find it difficult often to change is because it triggers that survive channel. And once the survive channel is triggered, like I said earlier, you're focused on only a very narrow problem-solving effort. Right, you can't think expansively, you can't be creative, you can't be innovative. And so, understanding what are your personal survive triggers, what are the things that you view as threats, um, and then acknowledging those and being able to sort of uh, understand when that's happening and being aware of when your survive channel is highly active. Uh, and then similarly starting to understand, well, what are the things that get you excited? What are the things that, that are opportunities for you so that you can more deliberately put yourself in situations where your thrive channel is being activated? Because once that's activated, that's when you're going to be more creative, more innovative, able to approach change from that sort of embracing change rather than resisting change perspective. You've studied so many different businesses and organizations. I'm wondering, and sometimes businesses have great assets, they have a great history, they have a, a brand value, and still they go under or they risk going under. I can only imagine it's something to do with leadership and not making those changes that need to be made. So what are many of us not understanding about what is good leadership and what qualities it's important to cultivate? Organizations will, or businesses will sometimes fail for a whole host of reasons, right? One of them is leadership. They are, of course, even good businesses that, because of how quickly things are changing, just have not been able to change fast enough to meet, to meet the changing needs. So with that, with that said, I think the big shift, at least in leadership, that's required is getting away from this idea of the infallible leader who has a brilliant vision, right? I think we, we tend to sometimes think of leaders as people who are larger than life, who are, you know, who are somehow different than everybody else and who are able to, again, look into the future and predict the future and then come up with a great sort of strategy to, to mobilize people to get there and who have all the answers, right? Who are able to sort of process information and come up with answers in a way that others can't. And the problem with that, of course, is if that's your view of leadership, well, then one, you're generally just waiting for somebody else to come and lead because it's something that's larger than life. And two, they aren't that many larger than life figures, right? So I think the shift we need to make in terms of how we think about leadership is it is largely a question of leaders are able to activate that thrive channel in people, right? And there are certain things we now know about how to activate the thrive channel. And so leaders are able to do that and are able to do things like talk about opportunity and talk about why they think the future that they're sort of envisioning is going to be, is going to be better than what, what, what is currently happening. They're open there. They recognize that they don't have all the answers. And 
they don't mind saying, look, we thought we were going to head in this direction, but actually, you know, we now need to go this way and we were wrong about that, right? Because there's definitely plenty of examples in history of leaders who failed because they went down one path and didn't change their minds, right? And that's, and, and frankly, we encourage that, right? We encourage that in leaders. We go, well, we want leaders who are decisive. We want leaders who don't change their mind, who don't flip-flop, right? And, and the reality is, actually, you want leaders who reassess information and make different decisions and pivot and change. And so I think moving away from this model of the command and control, all-knowing, all-seeing, visionary uh, leader to one of um, somebody whose, whose primary role is to be able to mobilize more people to look out for threats and opportunities and take action, uh, and, and who's able to sort of inspire people to want to engage with change, and hence is open to, open to changing their own mind, um, and hence is uh, surrounding themselves with, with more and more people who have different perspectives, who is able to enable more people to partake in decision-making, and, and doesn't see themselves as sort of the, the sole decision maker, but actually as an enabler of others to be able to make to be able to make better decisions. Yes, and I'd like to go into some kind of case studies that everyone will be uh, familiar with on the business side and then like governmental side. So we think about someone and I don't even know if you could find another comparison like Steve Jobs, for instance, very distinct leadership style, very successful. So again, an Apple having the assets that had nearly failed. Uh, and then when he retook the leadership, I mean, how do you like apply what you've learned at Cotter to, to his style? And is that something that can really be replicated because it seems quite unique? Yeah, I think it is, it is always a little bit dangerous to look at individual leaders and try to, and try to replicate their styles because uh, there is, there is always a confluence of the circumstances, the type of business, the moment in time, um, and then the leader sort of being able to, you know, take take that moment in time and do something that, you know, that we look at in hindsight and say is fantastic. And frankly, we don't know how many other people did some of the same things, made some of the equally good decisions, but it didn't pan out the same way, right? So I think it's always dangerous to look at individuals and, and try to learn from all of what they did. It is, however, very helpful to learn from certain elements of what individuals did, because we can look and say, oh, well, that person did that really well. So, you know, one of the examples we talk about in the book, because while it's almost hard to, to talk about leadership without thinking about him is, is Mandela. And you can look at what Mandela did and you can look at specific elements of it in terms of how he helped mitigate the survive channel that was highly active, right? I mean, the I can't think of situations where a survive channel at a broad na national level would be more active. And he took specific steps to help mitigate that, that survive channel, right? So you can look at examples like that. If you take Steve Jobs, for example, one of the things Steve Jobs did do really well um, is create an extremely compelling vision for the product. So if you look at how Steve Jobs describes the products that Apple's, Apple created, they're always about fantastic opportunity in the future, the sorts of things you can do that you couldn't do before. So I think learning sort of elements from different leaders and saying, what did different leaders do? I think that's always very beneficial, but I think looking at an individual and saying, how do we create that same kind of leader uh, or that same person in, in other organizations, I think is not, well, one, very difficult to do, not necessarily helpful because the context is different, right? I mean, people talk about Churchill all the time as Churchill was a great leader in World War II, but Churchill was probably not the best leader in, in other, or would not have been the best leader in other 
the circumstances. And I think that's true of, of most leaders, whether it's business or, or otherwise. Yes, and so I'm glad you brought in the Mandela, the, the, the governmental example. I think, and when you speak about Steve Jobs and Apple's, his and Apple's vision and really storytelling, he's very good at storytelling, it is to imagine these unique products that we all want to buy into. And I think about government, and I think that politicians are great storytellers. I feel now at the moment, you can see it around the world, but let's talk about America. Politicians are very strong on storytelling and it's sometimes frustrating. And I feel like the coalition building or get, getting together around some of these important issues that shouldn't be bipartisan or should be bipartisan. It's, it's, it, that's not happening, but the stories that are being told are great. <laughs> uh, so, you know, what are some of your frustrations in watching uh, the the slowness of change or progress if you don't like to get too political yeah. but clearly there's some things that we could do better no absolutely it's hard to, it's hard to not get too political but i'll make two comments one is i'll say you know since you mentioned the us and you mentioned the polarization in america at the moment and the inability to move forward and make change Honestly, I think that drives from a whole host of reasons that are that are leading to this, but it isn't it isn't it isn't good intent in trying to drive change, right? The storytelling doesn't help because the storytelling is too my partisan base. The storytelling is too my partisan base. I'm not trying to tell a story that unifies everybody, or I'm not being successful in doing that. So I almost don't want to use that example because of that reason. But if I think about climate change, right, coming out of COP26, I think where we are failing as leaders in that venue is we aren't telling a good, the story is only about the, the horrors of climate change. And, and that's not to say we don't need to tell that part of the story, but if that's the only story we tell, for the people who are already bought in and the people who are already supportive of big change, that works. But if I'm somebody who is not supportive, if I'm somebody who's sort of going, ah, I'm not so sure about this, I don't know how much I wanna change my life, I don't know how much I wanna sort of how much I wanna do differently because of this, the more I hear those stories, unless they personally impact me, I just shut down. I just go, I don't want to hear about that, right? And, and I think what, we, what we've got to be able to do is tell stories about, I mentioned this earlier, but tell stories about what are the positive opportunities in tackling climate change. And the more we tell those stories, and I don't think we're doing a good job of that at the moment. I mean, there are pockets and we're doing it in pockets, but as a wider narrative, that's what's missing. And that's what's frustrating for me when I look at sort of the efforts on, on climate change is, it is very much focused only on the negative aspects of what has already happened, as opposed to the positive aspects of what we can create. And I think that's what we need to be able to tell a better story around. Exactly. We're all shareholders or stakeholders in this planet, and we have to feel like the benefits, the quality of life, the air we breathe and the water and, and so many things, the food we eat. Um, we feel that we're invested in it. I'm, I I love to see, I mean, that's what we, we try to do at One Planet. But again, you're dealing with, you have to also know your audience. And that is, uh, people want to feel good about doing things. They don't want to feel like it's so <laughs> hard work and impossible. Um, Jordan, you wanted to come in with a question regarding this. Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering how young people can um, kind of tap into this. I feel like we're often carrying the long-term burden of climate change and how can we really tap into this um, positivity that you mentioned and create this lasting change and inspire others to do the same? Yeah. 
one of the big lessons from social movements as we studied it for the for the book was the ones that have been successful, but they've, they've done a lot of things well, but there's a couple of things that stand out. One is the sort of idea of an escalation of commitment. So getting people engaged through small steps, because it is, you know, and, and the sort of the, the example people talk about a lot is in the political arena, you sort of ask somebody if you can put a flyer up in their window, then you ask them for something bigger, then you ask them for something bigger, right? So that idea of an escalation of commitment, I was recently talking about this in looking at Chile during the Pinochet regime, and they were trying to get more people to sort of engage and participate. And one of the things that they did was ask people to walk slowly as a sign of, hey, look, we're, we're, you know, we're protesting by walking slowly. That's a very small ask because I can do it easily. It doesn't cost me anything. Chances of me getting in trouble are, are, are sort of slim because everyone's doing it. It's hard to tell who's doing it and who's not. You then get people engaged with that one step and then you sort of slowly build from there. So I think as you as you think about climate change and how can young people get more involved, you know, it's how do we create these small steps to get people to become more engaged and more active with what needs to happen. So that's one that that's sort of one piece of it. The other thing is, again, the social movements that have, that have been highly successful and in, in getting more people sort of quickly connected to them, you know, use things like humor, use things like talking about the better future, talking about the things that are going to be better, as opposed to only focusing on sort of what is what is bad and what is broken and what is what is negative. And I think the same thing for for climate change activism is how do we, you know, how, how do we tap into that piece as well, right? So other than talking about sort of where we are, how do we also start to tap into some of this, this, this sort of excitement about what we could do, right? What happens when we do do this? And it's not just about returning us back to where we were, right? It's more than that. It's about how our life changes. It's about how living on a planet that we, you know, that is healthy in the way that we want it to be. How does that inspire us to do things differently? What are the opportunities it creates for new kinds of jobs and roles? What is the opportunity it creates for, you know, all, all sorts of things, right? I'll, I'll stop there, but, but just not only focusing on returning back to where we were, but looking forward as well. My name is Jordan Holman, and I'm a guest editor and associate podcast producer with The Creative Process. I'm currently finishing up my final year at UCLA, and as a college student about to enter into the real world and become an active contributor to society, I've been thinking a lot about my generation specifically and how it feels like we're often tasked with this monumental and seemingly impossible mission to essentially save the world. A lot of us feel like it is our responsibility and we carry this great burden with us through college, through life, and through our interactions with each other. And so I loved how Gaurav Gupta was talking about how it is important to remain positive and thinking about ways to mobilize as a generation and as a society in ways that are actively contributing and thinking about why it's important that we save our planet, not just focusing on the grim reality that our planet is withering away, it's important to focus on why these changes are important and how they will benefit all of us. I think that as a young person specifically, that is a perspective that is just so needed right now. And I absolutely loved hearing that and coming from somebody with such business perspective, but also how that informs our environment and the way that we think about sustainability and climate change. And so much of why my generation is so important and so impactful is because we have so much momentum. And I think sometimes that can get lost in seeing these bleak realities, hearing about the 
horrible statistics thinking about our future and the, all the unknowns that come with that. And as someone who is representing Generation Z, I just feel like that message resonated so deeply. And I think it's such an important reminder to remain hopeful and to gather and to unite and to think about the ways that solving the climate crisis will also help us artistically, emotionally, politically, and strengthen us as a unit. And you've, in your research, drawn so much on brain science and how we can tap into that thrive mode. Uh, in your research, how have you come to a different understanding or a wider understanding of you know, what true intelligence is or the many different kinds of aptitudes and intelligences we have that exist? Yeah, I have to be honest, that's not something we've actually looked at a whole lot. You know, I think I think our focus on sort of the brain science is very much around this idea of what is it that causes us to resist change, right? And what is it about how our innate human hardwiring operates? And one of the things I, I maybe I should mention is when we talk about the survive and thrive channel, it's not a, it's not an abstract construct. It is it is actually how we are hardwired. So the survive channel is, you know, we we see a threat which used to be a physical threat. Now it could be anything, right? It could be a threat to our ego, a threat to our status. And, and, and when, we, when we perceive that threat, we actually have chemicals that get released through the brain. Those chemicals have physiological impacts on us, right? So adrenaline spiking means our energy levels go up. It means our, our focus narrows. We focus extremely hard on eliminating that threat, right? So there's an actual biological process that happens when we, when we see a threat. And similarly, a biological process that happens when we see an opportunity. They aren't just abstract constructs, but that's really about all we've, we've delved into in, in, in detail. So uh, I don't want to comment too much on uh, sort of other aspects of intelligence because it's not something we've, we've really researched. Yes, it seems to me, though, it also relates to intuition, which is another kind of intelligence, I believe, but is one that sometimes uh, gets not appreciated so much because it happened so quickly. And, and I guess how we can have faith in our intuition and have faith in the things that we know without really understanding how we know them. Yeah. And I mean, I think one thing that's hard to avoid is, and by the way, every time we talk about two, two sort of channels or two assistants, people always think about the um, thinking fast, thinking slow and, the, and, and that sort of two system. Right. And the thing that I think has become clearer and clearer is that, we tend to over-index on what we view as logic, right? So I'll speak for myself. I'm an engineer by training, and I always thought I make all my decisions by looking at all the data and coming up with a rational decision based on logic. And what I started to recognize more and more is that that's actually not really true. Often the decisions I make are intuitive heart decisions, right? It's based on how I feel. It's based on what, what, what my feeling is in the moment. And then, yes, I use my logic to justify the decision that I've made, right? I use my, my logic to say, oh, that's why I made that decision. But in reality, we're actually more often than we give it credit, making decisions based on how we feel. And that's why when leaders communicate about change, it's so important to not just speak to the intellectual side of things. You've got to speak to the emotionally compelling side of things as well, right? You've got to speak to why is this good from a logical, factual basis, but also how is this going to make people feel? How is this going to make people, why is this going to make people want to engage? And that's going to all be 
you know, heart. That's going to be all about emotions. And, and, it's, and you've got to have an emotionally compelling story in addition to the intellectually compelling story. Yes, definitely. To get to inspire that kind of long-term change that we're really invested in, what we want to do instead of what we have to do, as you say. We think a lot with this initiative about the future, and I know that you're also, of course, with Carter International, very forward-looking. And we think about what kind of world do we want to live in? What kind of world are we leaving for the next generation? As you reflect on these things and our current systems, what kind of changes would you like to see take place as you communicate with young people? What would you like them to know, preserve, and remember? You know, I think for me, a lot of it is about how do we democratize the idea of leadership? Because we've gotten to this point where, and there's a whole reason why, and there's a history behind it in terms of how organizations have evolved and coming out of the industrial age, they were all about command and control because the purpose of the organization was to create reliability and efficiency and consistency. But what that's meant is that we've ended up with a construct where in most of our, at least organizational life, you know, view it as there's a few people who are responsible for taking the big decisions, who are responsible for setting the direction. And everybody else has to, you know, do what they're told kind of thing. And then, and then you know, eventually maybe get to that. And the more we can, and when I say democratizing leadership, I don't necessarily mean that we need flat hierarchies within organizations, right? Because that's one way to do it. But I think there are reasons why we want to maintain some of the hierarchies we have now. But what I mean is, how do we get more people to be both looking out for opportunities and threats, then being empowered to actually take action, make decisions, being able to experiment, right? Agility means being able to experiment. It means being able to make mistakes. It means being able to learn from those mistakes. And so what I'd like to see is I'd like to see more organizations operate in that way, operate in a way where you've created an environment where everyone in the organization is empowered to look out for changes that are coming, is empowered to take action against those changes, is empowered to pivot and, and make, make different decisions. You know, we, we, we expect that we will make mistakes. We expect that we can't predict the future. We expect that we'll have to change direction. And hence, we're okay when we do need to do that. And we, and we learn from it and we adapt and we pivot. And, and I think if we're able to do that, the impact we can have on, you know, having better organizations, whether they're business or otherwise, better teams, better individual sort of action uh, is huge. That's what our mission as a business is all about. Millions leading, billions benefiting, and millions leading only happens if we, if we move away from this construct of leadership being something that's mysterious or mythical or that only a few people can do, but rather you know, is, is, is really a set of behaviors and actions that, that anyone can start partaking in. Yeah, we definitely do need to, uh, you know, listen to the top and the bottom and and all the levels in the middle and not to be afraid to make mistakes. I'm just thinking now and it's a completely different uh, field, but I just had an interview with a Pulitzer Prize winning poet and he has, you know, he loves it when he writes poems, he says that fail because he has devised this system that he knows that there'll always at least be a one good line in those. So that he'll, at the end, he'll have one poem, you know, make those mistakes and then draw out of it what's good, salvage what's good and build, build on that. I mean, we've talked about this for a while, as in the, at least in the business world, this idea of experimentation being it. The, 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 so everybody agrees it's a good thing. 
The challenge is how do we actually create organizations where that's how we operate? Because the problem is that our that our there are systems that came out of the industrial age that were about returning back to a status quo, that were about problem solving, but not opportunity seeking, that were about control and efficiency, not agility and innovation. Those systems we still have, that's still how we operate most businesses. And so while everyone talks about experimentation and, and agile and, and, you know, and being able to fail and learn from that, when it actually happens in most organizations, that's not how we react. Leaders don't react in a way that encourages that. So I think that's the challenge is how do we shift what we mean by, or not what we mean, but how do we shift how we operate within businesses so that it's not just a good idea, but we're actually operating that way. I think that's true in every realm. So I think your example from the void is absolutely spot on and absolutely the same. And what do you feel finally could it, we could learn from the natural world or the way that animals both inhabit their ecosystems and also, you know, make space for each other where you, you know, you go into a forest and you see so many different creatures interacting and needing each other. It's just the way animals communicate as well. I think there may be something we can learn from them as well. It's a good question. Um, I have to say, not one I have thought too much about. I think just the general idea though of, and I know this isn't exactly, exactly what you, what you asked, but I think the general idea of uh, the more, again, if I go back to, because I like to think of it in that construct, that, that the activation of the Thrive Channel, right? The recognition that different people will need different things. And, and the recognition that, you know, when you ask the question about leaders and Steve Jobs, then we're not trying to copy. We're not trying to create, there isn't one way to do something. So if you're trying to get, if you're trying to activate the Thrive Channel amongst a large group of people, you've got to recognize that different people will need different things. And so it is more about creating an environment within which people can feel safe, can feel like they can experiment, can feel like they are valued and, and, and they're included and their opinions matter. And then people will be able to activate their own, their own Thrive channel, as opposed to trying to, push, trying to push one way of doing something. Oh, exactly. Yes, there isn't just one system. And your Cotter International, your book, and, and just what you've been doing with an organization is definitely one we can adapt to our own individual systems or our own organizations. So thank you, Gaurav Gupta and Cotter International for showing us how organizations and individuals can find motivation and make meaningful change in this rapidly changing world. We appreciate your reflections on how we can harness the insights of brain science and critical thinking to increase our performance and make real impact. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and One Planet podcast.